Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 2 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. Thanks so much for all the positive feedback after Episode 1 with Dave Maloney. I was so happy to hear that a familiar voice in sports put a smile on your face. On to our next guest. He's the only current play-by-play broadcaster to call all four of the major sports. The NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA. And he's an encyclopedia of information. It's Kenny Albert. Thanks for coming on, Kenny. The only thing better would be, instead of speaking on the phone, if we were in Buffalo together getting set to work the Rangers-Sabres game that was scheduled for tonight. That would be much better with some wings at the bottom bing from the night before. Absolutely. So, obviously, you are a busy man most of the time, going from city to city. We always say, where in the world is Kenny Albert? So now that you have all this free time, what have you been doing? Well, it's a good question, uh, similar to most of us out there. Um, I have not gone anywhere over the last 10 or 11 days, ever since you and I and the rest of our traveling group with the Rangers at MSG Network got home from Denver uh, two Thursdays ago. Mm-hmm. And I've uh, been home in New Jersey, uh, haven't gone far, uh, did take two trips out of the town over the last couple of days, one to drop off groceries at my in-law's house and uh, the other to Newark Airport to pick up my daughter, and it was deserted. Hmm. I was one of about three people uh, down by the baggage claim before the before oh. the uh, passengers from the flight came down. So it's obviously been surreal, I think, for all of us um, to have this much time off and home with not much going on. I've probably watched more uh, CNN and more news over the last week than probably in the last two years combined, and uh, do keep it on often in, in hotel rooms and at home, but uh, it's it's I probably haven't really shut the TV off at all during the day. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think all of us probably have uh, similar stories, but I've gotten a lot of uh, cleaning done in the home office, which was, uh, uh, you know, on my schedule little by little every summer when I have more time off than the rest of the year. But I've made a little bit of a dent, probably about 5%. I have... Uh, probably brought about 12 bags over to the recycling uh, wow. center of, of newspapers and magazines and, and old files I was cleaning out. You know how it is when we travel. Things just pile up at home and you right. think you'll get to them and you never do. But I was going through baseball and football files from, from 2003. It must be a Hall um, of Fame of information. You know, found some stuff from the late 90s, believe it or not, and, and keep the important things. but. Right. Um, I probably have brought about 12 to 15 big garbage bags to the recycling complex over the last 10 days. Wow. So now that your wife has you home, does she have you binge watching any, anything? <laughs> any shows you're a, catching up on? We did watch a movie the other night. Um, we're big Curb Your Enthusiasm fans, so have been watching that on Sundays. But um, as far as the binge watching goes, hasn't, haven't started that too much yet. We did watch a couple of things, but... Uh, Sunday night is definitely a curb your enthusiasm time, 1030. Gotcha. So now, you know, we spend a lot of time together on the road. Uh, it's kind of like a second family, but you know, some things I don't know about you, or I feel like some other people should know and kind of want to dig a little deeper with you. So, you know, growing up, how were sports an influence on your life? Well, it was such a big part of it. Um, growing up with not only my father, but two uncles who were sportscasters as well. And, you know, it's really, I was surrounded by it from, from a young age and, and loved it right from the start, um, tagging along, going to games, watching games on TV. Um, when I was five years old, 
my parents bought me a tape recorder for my birthday, a toy tape recorder, which I, you know, you might not believe me. The listeners might not believe me, but I, I do not have it. That's, oh. that's not that's not one of the things that I still have. I totally although, would have thought you had it. Although you never know. It could be in a box somewhere. <laughs> um, so they bought me this tape recorder, and, you know, obviously I would learn by osmosis. I would watch pretty much everything, all sports, hockey, basketball, baseball, football, whatever was on. And I started announcing the games into the tape recorder off the TV. I set up my bedroom like a TV studio. I had the, the desk and then the bed in the middle and the TV on the other side. And I would sit there and announce games into the tape recorder. I actually do have some of these tapes, believe it or not, these audio cassettes um, in a box down in the basement. Some, some are in storage. Hmm. So, you know, that was probably from the age of five or six on. And when I was old enough, I would start bringing the tape recorder. By this point, it was probably a, a, a real tape recorder um, to Madison Square Garden, to Shea Stadium. And this is when I was probably 13, 14, 15, 16, and would do the same thing and uh, would announce the games into a tape recorder and uh, just getting the reps, getting the practice. And I think uh, a, huge, a huge day when I think back was in January of uh, – 1984, I was in 10th grade, first mm-hmm. year at Schreiber High School in Port Washington. And you and I actually have a connection prior to that. Um, in seventh grade, I kept the stats for the girls' basketball team. That's and, right. And the coach, the coach was Steve Shackle, who was my English teacher. And uh, he had two baby daughters at the time. And I, I guess you wound up going to college with either one or both of them, right? With, with Beth. We went to Marist right. together, yeah. She was basketball right. player at Marist College. So... Again, when I was in seventh grade, which would have been in 81 or 82, um, she was a year or two old and, and would sit with her mom and her sister right next to where I was. And I'd, I'd be keeping the stats for, for her dad, who was my English teacher and uh, the seventh grade basketball coach. So it's, it's amazing how small of a world it is. Um, but three years later, when I was in 10th grade, and, and by the way, he, he went on, Mr. Shackle, Steve Shackle went on to coach the uh, boys basketball team at the high school after I graduated. He became the boys head coach there. And at the time when I when I was in high school and when I knew him, he was still among the top 20 all-time rebounders in Marist College history. He had played at right. Marist back in the <laughs> early 70s, I guess. And I looked it up. He was actually listed in the media guide, one of the top 20 rebounders in Marist history. Wow, that's but awesome. But in 10th in grade, um, so January 84, and, and for the last couple of years prior to that, I was writing for the town paper, which I started doing probably around eighth grade, ninth grade. I would write the local high school sports for the town paper, the Port Washington News. Got paid five dollars a week. That was my first paying job. Hmm. And I would I would write my article. I would type it up, and I would slip it under the door of the uh, newspaper office on Main Street in Port Washington. <laughs> and uh, every month, I get a check for five dollars a week times four weeks, and those are the first paychecks I ever received. And then once I got to high school, I started writing for the high school paper. I became sports editor in 11th grade. And when one of my writers was a very good friend of mine from seventh grade on, Tom Galitti, who's now a, a tremendous writer for NHL.com and wrote for the Bergen Record in New Jersey for many years. But we had become friends in junior high school, and, and he started writing for me for the school paper. Wow, now he's so, down covering the Capitals, right? Covering the Capitals and the NHL for right. NHL.com and uh, – uh, you know, I could say that I take a little bit of credit for his career since I was his first sports editor back in high school. Um, so in 10th grade, um, Cox Cable of Great Neck, a small cable station on Long Island, uh, was coming to my school to film a girls' basketball game. And 
I was at all the games. I knew the coach. I knew the players. I knew the athletic director pretty well because I was covering the games for the school paper, the town paper. I would also uh, be the backup public address announcer when the teacher, uh, Mr. Broza, who was an English teacher and a Shakespeare expert, uh, he had a great voice. He, he could have been a professional broadcaster. And he was the public address announcer for the basketball games, the football games. And when he couldn't make it or had a conflict, I would fill in for him. So I was at all the games. So uh, the athletic director introduced me to the producer from Cox Cable, a gentleman by the name of Roy Menton, um, who showed up with a couple of camera guys and, and a, a little van and a, tape a couple of tape machines inside that van to film this girl's basketball game. And they were not going to use any announcers. They were just going to film the game with the two cameras. So I volunteered. Uh, they clipped a mic on me. <laughs> I announced the game. And the people sitting around me probably thought I was crazy talking to myself for an hour and a half uh, with this microphone clipped onto my shirt. <laughs> but after the game, I uh, chatted with, with the producer, Roy, and he gave me his business card, and I spoke to him on the phone the next day. And over the next three years, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, I wound up announcing hundreds of games, uh, basketball, football, hockey, baseball, lacrosse, soccer, you name it, mm -hmm. whatever sport was going on. And I would bring my friends along as color analysts. Mm. And it, it was just the greatest experience ever because I felt like I had a three-year head start. You know, it's not like it is today where you have all these sports casting camps in the mm. summer and kids are getting started in high school and even earlier and announcing games off, off you know, video games into their phone. Nobody was doing this back then. Right. So... I felt like I had a three-year head start on anybody who wanted to do it in college. So um, those three years are something that I think about often and would, would never really trade in for anything. Is that when you realized that play-by-play -play is what you wanted to do? Obviously, you're writing for the newspaper, and, and your father did a bunch of various different roles with NBC and you know, with the, with the news at night as well as play-by-play. -play. But was this the moment when you kind of realized play-by-play -play was, your, was your niche? No, I actually knew that a lot earlier. I, uh, probably when I was six or seven, um, right. when I started doing it to the tape recorder. But no, but you're right. I did a lot of writing and I enjoyed that. But even while I was doing that, I knew that the play by play was what I wanted to do. But the writing, I think, uh, taught me a lot, you know, just about doing interviews and covering games and, you know, how to put together a sentence and a paragraph. So I think that was a big part of the, um, you know, preparation back then as well. Then you went on to NYU. What went into that decision? Um, really, really two things, and, and you'll laugh, but um, there, there were so many schools and still are out there which have tremendous broadcasting programs. Uh, Syracuse is the one that people always put at the top of the list. Uh, Northwestern, Fordham, Hofstra. Marist. There, there are just Marist. There, there are some, <laughs> the great Mike Breen, Hall of Famer right. out of Fordham, and he also did some broadcasting up at Marist, right? Exactly. Uh, basketball team back yep. in the 80s. So... You know, all these schools were great, and I certainly considered applying to some of them. But I had two criteria. Number one, I didn't want to be away from the NHL for four years. Hmm. So in my mind, I had to go to college in an NHL city, whether hmm. it be Boston, Washington. Um, New York kind of came into the picture, you know, a little on the later side. I hadn't really considered going to school in New York. Um, so I was thinking more about schools in the Boston and D.C. area. Hmm. But my, my other criteria was that, and again, all these schools are great that I just mentioned, but I had heard that at many of them, if you wanted to be on the air, you might not get an opportunity until your junior or senior year. There were so many kids, 50 or 100 kids, that wanted to do play-by-play -play at Syracuse, for example, or maybe right. 20, 20 at Fordham. 
Um, you know, 50 at BU, who knows, Maryland. So I felt like maybe if I go somewhere with a little bit of a smaller sports program, um, that there wouldn't be as many people that wanted to do the games on the radio. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the case at NYU. I actually met, um, again, another, uh, uh, you know, big moment. I talked about the Cox Cable, uh, you know, showing up in my high school, mm-hmm. but um, I had access. I had interned at the NHL office uh, during the summer between, I'd have to, you know, figure out what year it was, either between 10th and 11th grade or 11th and 12th. It was probably 11th and 12th grade, interned at the NHL office uh, for a gentleman named Stu Hackle, who was the editor of Goal Magazine at mm-hmm. the time, and John Halligan, who was the great PR director for the Rangers right. for many, many years and then transitioned over to the NHL. So I had access to, to a press credential. And during that uh, senior year in high school, I went to a lot of Islanders games because we only lived about 20, 25 minutes from Nassau Coliseum. I had uh, my license at that time, my driver's license. So I went to probably 30 Islanders games and I would sit up in the press box off to the side and, and many of the games announced into a tape recorder just to get the reps and get the practice. And at one of those games, I ran into uh, and met for the first time C.J. Papa, hmm. um, who at the time was an NYU student, was a junior, and was the sports director at the radio station. And uh, C.J. went on, ha- has had a terrific career with, with Sports Channel and various radio and TV stations with Fios and Cablevision. And just got a text from him the other day, as a matter of fact. Um, so I hadn't made my decision yet. I hadn't sent out all the applications and we wound up talking for an entire Islander game and he was the sports director at the NYU radio station. So that kind of got me thinking about NYU and he told me all about it. Mm -hmm. They they would do the basketball games, the, the men's and women's games. And there were only five or six, uh, members of the sports staff at WNYU. So I wind up applying, I wind up going to NYU, uh, Rich Ackerman, who you know very well, the mm-hmm. AC, WFAN, uh, CBS Sports Radio, MSG Varsity back in the day, has done college games for Fox. Um, we had gone to summer camp together, and we're good friends, and uh, he was considering NYU as well, hmm. and also wanted to get into the business. So we wound up uh, sort of making the decision around the same time. We wound up rooming together for four years, worked at the radio station, and uh, again, we, all of us, the five or six of us, uh, were able to do every job mm-hmm. right from the start, freshman year. We would rotate doing play-by-play, color, uh, producing, statistician, uh, engineer, board op back at the station. And it was a, it was a really good Division Three program. Uh, they had just joined the UAA, the University Athletic Association, with, with schools uh, such as Emory down in Atlanta, Brandeis mm-hmm. in Boston, University of Rochester, WashU and St. Louis, University of Chicago. I know I'm forgetting a few. Mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon, uh, Case Western in Cleveland. So an added bonus was we would get to travel a lot. A lot. Most Division mm-hmm. three schools only play games either in their area or within a right. three or four hour bus ride. But although we were a Division three program, we would go to Boston and St. Louis and Atlanta and Chicago and, and get to do the games on the radio. So that was that's tremendous. That was an that was an added bonus. So those are really the two criteria: uh, not wanting to be away from the NHL for four years, and wanting to go somewhere with a good sports program where you could do the radio right from the start. And you know, another added benefit, which I probably didn't think about at the time, um, I was able to do some other internships uh, during the during the college years and. Uh, 
Uh, one of them was with Howie Rose, who was uh, at WHN at the time, and it became WFAN in 1987. And I had known Howie a little bit uh, prior to this, and he asked me if I wanted to be the associate producer of Mets Extra when, mm. when WFAN started. Oh. So in the summers of 87, 88, 89, and then uh, into 90 before I moved down to Baltimore when I got my first uh, real job uh, mm. after college graduation, I was at Shea Stadium with Howie 60 to 70 days and nights a year um, as he was uh, hosting Mets Extra. And I would go down to the locker room and hand one of the players the headset to do a post-game interview after a Mets win. And this was during the glory days. So it was Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, right. Keith Hernandez right on down the line. And I sort of had a front row seat to all that uh, following the 86 World Series, how he started the show the next year in 87. But they did make it back to the playoffs in 88. I was also handling a lot of the statistical work at MSG for the radio broadcasts, for the Rangers, the Knicks TV broadcasts. Um, and also, uh, wound up, uh, working for a gentleman named Joel Blumberg, who passed away a couple of years ago, who was a, a big influence, um, who was a, a producer engineer type also did some on-air work. And I started, uh, working with Joel at WEVD radio, which ironically was located about two blocks from my dorm. Hmm. Uh, they were right downtown at NYU and they were the Islander station at the time. And I would fill in on Islander pre- and post-game shows from the studio um, during my junior year in college. And what what that led to was um, actually broadcasting my first NHL game, Islanders at Winnipeg. I filled in on four Islander games, believe it or not, my senior year in college on the radio uh, due to my affiliation with Joel and with WEBD. So my first um, actual NHL broadcast was December 2nd, 1989, of an Islanders game in Winnipeg. And that never would have happened had I not been going to school in New York and gotten the opportunity to, to fill in on the pre and post game shows at, at WEBD. So it, it all kind of tied in together. And, and then I was able to use that tape from the Islander Winnipeg game. Uh, I sent that one around to various minor league teams and, and wound up getting a job in Baltimore with the Baltimore Skipjacks in the summer of 90. Uh, to do their radio and, and many other duties in the team office as well. But radio right. was, was the main thing. And I think if I hadn't gone to NYU and then worked those four mm-hmm. Islander games it, during 89-90, then the skipjack opportunity certainly uh, would not have presented itself, at least at that time. Would you say you're more busy now or were you busier back then? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Back then, when I think back, I was pretty busy back then. Right, yeah. Uh, not, not sure exactly when I got the schoolwork done. Right. In, in college, I was, I was at I was at MSG probably fifty to sixty nights a year. Um, I would say at three quarters of the home games for both the Rangers and the Knicks. I was doing some of the Islander fill-in work, the Mets stuff with Howie, um, and then playing hockey as well. We had a club team at NYU that another student actually started my freshman year. And I played club hockey for four years, so it, it was a pretty busy time back then. And then you mentioned the Skipjack, Baltimore Skipjacks. And for those who don't know, your roommate was? My roommate on the road during every road trip for two seasons was uh, the great Barry Trotz, who's currently the head coach of the Islanders. Um, so I first met Barry in that summer of 1990. So I was 22. And he was probably 27 at the time, 26 or 27. Mm-hmm. And 
I had been hired in late June. So I graduated from college in May and was really fortunate. Like I said, I sent this tape around to various teams and most of them in minor league hockey. And uh, <laughs> you'll laugh at this, but my, for my graduation present from mm-hmm. college, um, Joel Blumberg, who I mentioned earlier, right. had produced, produced a show, a live radio show. He was really ahead of his time in many ways. And for a couple of years, I had helped out. He had put together a live show from the NHL draft. Hmm. So we, we were down in the press area right by the floor. And we did it uh, in Buffalo one year and in Montreal one year. And I was sort of an assistant producer, but I would do some interviews and, and help out on the air. And it was a couple of the Islanders announcers and some other local guys from New York. And it was great. It was so much fun, you know, being around the NHL draft and all the general managers and scouts and players and coaches. So in 1990, the draft was in Vancouver. Mm. And this was the draft that people still talk about. It was Yager was the fifth pick by Mm -hmm. the Penguins and Owen Nolan, Mike Ricci, Peter Nedved, Keith Primo. That was the top five. I don't think I got the order right. Um, the Islanders had made the playoffs on the last day of the season on an overtime goal by Yui Krupp. Hmm. And they snuck into the playoffs. I remember sitting in my car, listening. I think I was, I brought my car into the city. I was still in college. And I'm listening to this game on the radio in April. If the Islanders win the game, they're in the playoffs. They wind up winning the game in overtime, make the playoffs, but get the sixth overall pick. Pittsburgh gets five, and they select Yarmir Yager. Hmm. So if the Islanders lose that game, they have the fifth pick. And who knows how, you know, hockey history would have been changed. So the 1990 draft is in Vancouver. And Joel was going to put together this show, this radio show from the draft. And uh, they, they didn't have the funds to fly everybody out there. So my graduation present for my parents was a plane ticket to Vancouver to go to the NHL draft hmm. and uh, at a hotel room. Right. And I got, to, I got to work on the show. So about a week before that, um, I had received a phone call uh, from the Skipjacks about coming to do an interview uh, for the open broadcast position. And uh, Mike Haynes, who had been their radio broadcaster, who went on to do the Colorado Avalanche for many, many years on on radio and TV, he had left for another opportunity. Hmm. So, again, you know, timing is everything. And and if Mike Haynes stays in Baltimore, uh, there's never an opening there. Right. Uh, But he moved on, and I had sent my tape around, and I had a couple of people tell me about the opening in in Baltimore, uh, people who I knew in the business. And... I wind up getting a phone call to come down and interview. And actually, when I when I called back, when I, when I called the Skipjack's office back, they had left a message. The the gentleman who answered the phone was Doug McLean, hmm. who had been the <laughs> been the head coach. Huh. So it turns out he was transitioning as well. He was going to become an assistant with the Capitals, but he was still in the office when I called back. So he actually answered the phone hmm. uh, when I called the office to set up the interview. So I wind up going to uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, the late Tom Ebright was the owner of the Skipjacks. He was a businessman from New York. He had a summer home in Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania, near mm-hmm. Harrisburg. Yeah. So I flew in and uh, met with Mr. Ebright and with Alan Rackfin, who was the, the head salesperson for the Skipjacks. It was about an eight or nine person office and uh, did the interview. And then a couple of days later, flew to Vancouver to go to the draft. And I'll never forget uh, all week long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, calling my answering machine back home, because that's how you did it back then. There were were no cell phones, there was no internet, there was no email. 
And every single day in Vancouver, I would call my answering machine about 10 times a day just to see if there was a message. And finally on Friday, the day before the draft, I had a message from the Skipjacks that I was hired and got the job. Oh. And I'll, I'll just never forget that moment. So I wind up moving to, moving to Baltimore about a week later. And uh, I, I, I was playing hockey for a couple of years in a pickup game at Sky Rink in Manhattan at midnight on Mondays. And it was with a number of media people um, every Monday night, 33rd between 9th and 10th, mm-hmm. 16th floor, Skyring. And Frank Brown, who was a sports writer for the Daily News, went on to work for the NHL. He was the goalie every week. Uh, John Delapina put together the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a longtime Daily News sports writer, covered hockey, and he's now a vice president of PR for the NHL. It was his game, and mm-hmm. he would invite a lot of us out to play. And when I got the job in Baltimore, I remember John telling me, my college roommate lives down there. He's a writer for the Baltimore Sun. Here's his number if you want to call him. I didn't know anybody in Baltimore. I was moving down there, basically drove down, packed everything in my car, my clothes, mm-hmm. and uh, other essentials, and drove to Baltimore. And uh, John Delapina had given me his college roommate's phone number, and it turns out it was Ken Rosenthal, huh. who's, who's a tremendous baseball insider, right. you know, with Fox and with MLB Network. Right. And he was a writer for the Baltimore Sun at the time and actually lived in the area where I was about to move. So uh, he and his wife were so generous to invite me over to their house a couple of times. And uh, we became good friends and started working together about 20 years later. Um, So, uh, again, I know it's a long answer to a short question, but that summer I start working in the team office, uh, selling advertising and doing some PR and marketing work and just waiting waiting and waiting for the season to start in October. And uh, somebody from the team office had a barbecue at some point that July. And uh, that's where I first met Barry Trotz. So he he had just moved to Baltimore. He had been a scout for the Capitals. He was uh, the Western Canadian scout. And he had filled in as the interim head coach, I guess, for a couple of games the year before. But now they brought Barry in as the assistant coach to Rob Laird, who was hired the same day I was, or at least they announced it the same day. Mm-hmm. Rob was our head coach in Baltimore. He was a longtime minor league player, had coached, uh, was with the Fort Wayne Comets for many years. And um, he's still, to this day, um, a scout for the LA Kings. He has two Stanley Cup rings. I bump into him in various press boxes around the <laughs> league. Um, but he was a really good guy, and he was our head coach at the time, and Barry was the assistant coach. And then my second year, which was the 91-92 season, uh, the Capitals decided to make a change, and, and Barry became the head coach. And uh, he, like I said, we had been roommates on the road to save money. Right. A lot of the minor league teams would have the broadcaster room with either the bus driver or the assistant coach. <laughs> so in our case, uh, it was the assistant coach. And when Barry took over as head coach in February 92, I'll never forget him saying to me, we can't change the karma. We still have the room together. So... <laughs> We still room together, and I learned so much from him, you know, not only about hockey, but, you know, just about life, stuff off the ice. Um, we, we had a lot of f- memorable moments together, which, which we still talk about whenever I see him. Um, he always reminds me about the road trip to Utica. You know, we take these five- and six-hour bus rides. Right. At the American Hockey League level, most of the games are played Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then once in a while, you might have a Tuesday game, but... The majority of the games were on weekends, so we might play a home game in Baltimore on a Friday night, get on the bus for five hours, go up to Binghamton, New York, 
and then play in New Haven or Springfield, Massachusetts the next night. So a lot of long bus rides. Uh, we'd always order. There was an Italian restaurant in Baltimore. So all the players and the two coaches, the two trainers, and myself, there'd be a, a sheet of paper up in the locker room before the game, and you place your order. You know, whether you wanted a chicken parmesan or a couple of slices of pizza, you know, whatever you wanted to order from this place, we'd put our order in. We Everybody would throw like 10 bucks into the envelope, and our food would be waiting for us on the bus, on our seat, <laughs> when we got on the bus after the game. And I was always in the third seat on the left. Um, the coaches were in the front, one on the left, one on the right. And then uh, the trainers, uh, Dan Redman was our trainer who went on. Uh, to become the trainer in Nashville for many years with the Predators, with Barry, with Trotz. Um, and Rich Oberlin was our equipment manager. So they would sit in the second seat, left and right. I was in the third seat on the left. A defenseman named Ken Loveson, who had played for the Canadian Olympic team, he was always to my right. And then right behind me was Reggie Savage, who hmm. had a, a nice career in the NHL. Um, he was a first-round pick of the Capitals, went on to play for Quebec, and maybe one or two other teams and, and played in the minor leagues for a long time. And he would sit behind me and, and he loved reading my sporting news. I would always bring the various publications on the bus. Mm-hmm. Cause again, you had no internet at the time. Uh, once in a while they'd throw a movie up. Some of the buses would have a TV on it, but I'd always have to read my sporting news pretty quickly because Reggie Savage wanted to read it next. <laughs> he was a huge Larry Bird fan. He loved basketball. <laughs> so, uh, and, and then, Oftentimes, the players on these long rides would wear, you know, they'd have these team-issued sweatsuits, warm-up suits. And uh, I didn't have one at the time, and I wore, I don't know if you remember the old Sergio Tacchini tracksuits. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, had, I would wear that once in a while. I'll never forget one of the bus trips. A lot of the players from, from the back, you know, behind me started yelling, take off your mom's tracksuit. What are you wearing your mom's tracksuit for? So... Um, but Barry, no, he was great. And I'll never forget the, uh, the night in Binghamton. We played the Binghamton Rangers in the playoffs in 91. Mm-hmm. And they had Ty Domi and, and a bunch of other guys who would go on to play for the New York Rangers. And we lost the series in six games. But Barry was in charge of editing together uh, some of the tapes that they would use in, in team meetings. Mm-hmm. And the way they did it back then is Barry would travel with him, uh, two little two VCR machines. And each team was in charge of taping the games, and one copy was for the home team and one was for the visiting team. So after the game, the visiting team coaches would get a VHS copy of the game. Hmm. But then if they wanted to break it down into power play situations, shorthanded, penalty killing, they'd have to edit it themselves. Hmm. So one of Barry Trotz's duties as the assistant coach, he would have to you know, fast-forward the tape and take all the power plays right. and splice it together and you know, he'd be doing this in our hotel room. And this one night in Binghamton, I remember he had two VCRs out on the bed. It was a small room. And it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. We had lost the game. Everybody was in a bad mood. And one of the tapes gets jammed in the VHS machine. And he spent the entire night, um, you know, I feel bad now thinking back because I, I fell asleep. I didn't stay up to help him. <laughs> you didn't but, help him? But, well, I helped him in a small way. I, I had to handle my own radio equipment at the time. I was my own engineer and producer. Right. And I, I had a little screwdriver in the in the radio equipment, so I was able to at least loan that to Barry <laughs> to, to help him. You know, he, he basically had to take apart this VCR and try and get it back together, and somehow he managed to do, to do that. And, you know, when I woke up at 7, 7.30 in the morning, everything was okay again. But uh, I, don't, I don't think he got much sleep that night. Wow. Um I was also in charge of, I guess it was like 
early day analytics. Uh, Jack Button, the late Jack Button, who was a great man, he was the head of player personnel and, and scouting for the Capitals. And we used to refer to this as the Jack Button sheet. And his sons, Craig and Todd Button, uh, long-time executives in the NHL, they both have done broadcasting, uh, do a terrific job. Um, there was this sheet that had 20, 20 rows you know, from top to bottom and then about 40 columns across. You know, anything you could think of mm-hmm. from, from a given game. Goals, assists, points, uh, plus minus, time on ice. And these weren't official stats at the time, but they had people keeping them. And after every game on the bus, I would have to fill out this sheet with every player's statistics from the game that night and then fax it to Jack Button whenever <laughs> we got to a hotel or back to the team office. So everybody kind of chipped in, whether it was Barry Trotz, um, you know, splicing the tapes together, me filling out the sheet, helping to mm-hmm. order the food. Um, I remember a bus trip we took. Portland, Maine was was our longest trip. That was 10 to 12 hours. Ooh. And we played a Friday night game at home, and we played in Portland Saturday night. And this was the one time, aside from when we went to Canada once a year for a trip to the Maritimes where we played about six or eight games, the only time the team flew within the U.S., they did, ha- they did buy the team plane tickets to fly from Baltimore to Portland, Maine. But they were going to take the bus back, so they still had to get the bus up there. So myself and the two trainers and the, the team, and the team owner rode the bus. So there were four of us on the bus heading up with the hockey equipment right. because they had to get the equipment up there. So it's like a 10- or 12-hour bus ride, oh. and we pull in at 7 or 8 in the morning, and it's light out, and we pull up to the arena because we had to unload the equipment at the uh, Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine. And who's there to meet us to help us get the Baltimore Skipjacks equipment off the team bus? The head coach of the Portland Pirates at the time, or the Maine Mariners, Rick Bonus. Wow. He was, in his, he was in his office already that morning, and now the head coach of the Dallas Stars. But Rick Bonus actually helped us get all the equipment <laughs> off the bus and into the locker room of, of the team that he was going to coach against that night. That is amazing. Oh. But, you know, the. the the uh, most memorable Barry Trotz story, which I know I've told you, and uh, Barry brings it up every time I see him, is when he set up a uh, fake arrest situation of, of me in, uh, in Nova Scotia back in uh, 91, or I think it was 92. And I'll, I'll try to make, this, uh, make it quick, but um, every year he would do this to somebody, but you would never hear about it. They would keep it quiet until the next year. So they would get either a trainer or a broadcaster or one mm-hmm. of the new players on the team. So we're flying up to uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. And again, it's the, it's the 20 players, two coaches, two trainers, and me, 25 of us in the traveling party. We had three flights that day. We started in the morning in Baltimore. We had to fly to Boston, switch flights in Boston to go to Halifax, and then switch flights in Halifax to go to Sydney, Nova Scotia. Oh. And the planes got smaller each time. It was a you know, regular sized plane to Boston, then a small plane and a smaller plane. So we were told in advance, most of our luggage wouldn't make it until the next day because the <laughs> hockey equipment was the priority. They had right. to get all the equipment. They had to get 20 equipment bags and all the sticks on these flights. So of course I have the most luggage of anybody. All the players have a small bag. <laughs> it's a two week trip. It's a two week trip. Right. And they're wearing, they're wearing their one suit. They have a small bag with a couple of a pair of socks and shirts and underwear and, you know, whatever else they're bringing up. But no player has more than a small gym bag for this two-week trip. And Which we course, still see. 
Right, and of course, I come onto the bus with two huge suitcases, and there's no wheels at the time. You know, you're breaking your back carrying your suitcases. So I have these two suits. I brought like four suits, eight dress shirts, one for each game. You know, if I knew now, or if I knew then what I know now, I would have packed a lot more economically. Maybe two suits at the most for six games. It's radio. Nobody sees you anyway, so who cares? You could wear... You know, get a shirt cleaned along the way too. Right. So I have two suitcases, so I know I know they're not going to make it up. And I have the radio equipment, and I have my briefcase, so I'm struggling. So we were told in advance your your personal luggage will probably not make it until the next day. So we land late afternoon, finally in Sydney, Nova Scotia, after three flights, and it's a it's a really small airport. It's it's smaller than most private airports. <laughs> it's like it's basically a room. Mm-hmm. So we, we get off on the on the tarmac, we come down the steps, it's still light out, and there's a gentleman at the bottom with a clipboard. So when I get to the bottom of the steps, uh, he stops me for a second and points to a couple of names on the clipboard. He says, is this you? I said, yes. So I figure, okay, maybe he needs me to identify what my luggage looks like since it's not getting there until the next day. So they take me inside. And the team I could see is getting onto a bus at this point. They take me into a small room and start questioning me. Um, is your passport valid? Have you ever been arrested? Do you know anyone that's in trouble? All these questions. All right. And finally they said, all right, you have to come with us. Now now we get in an unmarked car. Now I know I'm not being kidnapped. I could see there's there are some you know computer type devices at the front. <laughs> right. You know, it, it is an official car. And it's two older gentlemen, probably in their fifties at the time. And they start driving, and they continue to ask me the same questions. Is your passport valid? When was the last time you were in Canada? Uh, do you know anybody in trouble? Have you ever been arrested before? Is there anything in your bag that shouldn't be there? And, you know, I know that I'm answering all the questions truthfully, and right. I have no idea why this is happening. But at that, at that point, I'm not thinking that it's a practical joke. So finally, after about 15 minutes, they pull up at what looks like a hotel. And the one gentleman says to me, uh, we have one final question. Do you know Jimmy Weisman? Jimmy Weisman was and still is the head of security for the Washington Capitals, mm. who you've probably seen a million times down at the uh, at the arena in D.C. Mm-hmm. It turns out his brother was the police chief up in Sydney, Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. and that's who that's who would set this up every year. <laughs> so, uh, well, two two things coming out of that story. Number one, the team bus got lost. I actually beat them to the hotel. <laughs> so. When I got there, they weren't even there yet. But uh, what led to it, which I should have mentioned earlier, is that a couple of months prior, I would interview one of the coaches prior to every game on tape and then replay it on the pregame show. And I was interviewing Barry Trotz one day, and something came out of his mouth uh, kind of the wrong way. It was funny, whatever it was. And we stopped the tape, and we, we started it over. But I made the mistake of going to play it after the game for about half the team. And uh, again, I don't remember what he said, but it was something that the team really enjoyed, and mm-hmm. word got word got back to him, and he said, "He said I'm going to get you back one of these days." And <laughs> that's what that's what led to the uh, fake arrest in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Oh, that is tremendous, tremendous. Now, the the one story that he tells to this day that is not true about the hotel room in Utica, we arrived about two or three in the morning in a snowstorm. And Barry and I had a first floor room in a Holiday Inn in Utica, New York. And the heat wasn't working properly. And there was snow coming under the door. And we had, we had, we had our winter jackets on. We slept in our clothes and our coats. And, you know, he has a, 
he has a bit of a memory issue because when he tells the story now, he claims that I wanted to cuddle with him, but uh, <laughs> that was certainly not the case. <laughs> oh boy, it, it's it's really amazing how the dominoes happened throughout your early in your career and how you know the Ken Rosenthal story and everything else kind of comes together and and all your hard work and dedication that brought you to like the pro level and now covering all four professional sports you know i see you reading all the time constantly but but how do you keep up on all the news and and stay afloat on everything well you know i tell a lot of the young broadcasters that ask that question pretty often um i think the number one key is is organization you really have to be organized and keep up with things and not let too much time go to waste, which is why this time now, these last 10 days and, and the weeks coming up are just so strange, not having to be anywhere and not having, not having to prepare for the next game. This is probably the first time in 30 years, even if the next game isn't for a couple of weeks, which right. does occur sometimes in the summer, you always know what that next game is and you're preparing for that and watching other games and reading. And right now that's obviously not the case. Um, but Again, you know, the dominoes you talked about are so were so important and, you know, just so fortunate. I always have to pinch myself, um, you know, given that I have been involved in all four sports now for quite some time. And my goal all along and when I got hired by the Skipjacks, that was my goal. I wanted to do hockey on the radio. That was it. Mm-hmm. That, that was the number one goal, even though I loved all the other sports and really enjoyed the experience that I got in high school and, and somewhat in college, working various sports as well. And, and really, that was the next the next big step was after the two years with the Skipjacks, um, getting hired by Bill Brown and Jody Shapiro at Home Team Sports in, in Washington as the uh, TV voice of the Capitals. It was a split package at the time. So mm-hmm. Home Team Sports did the home games and a different crew and a different station did the away games. So I was hired to work 30 Capitals home games on TV with Craig Lachlan, who's mm-hmm. still the color analyst for the Caps. Right. And for three years... Uh, that was my uh, my uh, main job. I was also working at WTOP Radio doing sports updates, but um, did the Capitals for three years and have some tremendous memories from uh, you know those seasons as well, 92, 93, uh, through 94, 95, and that was unfortunately the lockout year, so we had a shortened season in 95. Um, but also, while I was working at HTS, had the opportunity to fill in on some Washington Bullets, NBA games, mm-hmm. Orioles, baseball games, did a ton of college basketball, uh, both men's and women's and some other sports as well. So that really um, was also a key step, uh, getting involved in, in the other pro sports down in D.C. And I, I thought I'd be down there forever. It was, it was a great job. Um, love, love living in the D.C. area. Um, in 94, a bunch of us were real fortunate in the right place at the right time when when Fox and Rupert Murdoch uh, stole the rights to the NFL NFC package away from CBS. And, you know, never in any of our wildest dreams did we think that at 25, 26, 28 years old, uh, we'd be doing NFL football. And those are the ages of Joe Buck, myself, and Tom Brenneman at the time, Hmm. who were hired as three play-by-play announcers to do NFL football in 94. So everything kind of happened pretty quickly. Um, And then uh, in 95... Um, I was actually, uh, offered a couple of jobs during the summer, uh, one or two actually in the New York area and turned them down. They were, they were TV jobs with, with pro teams hmm. and believe it or not, turned them down 
uh, because I was really happy in Washington and felt obligated, you know, to the people that hired me. I had time left on a contract and mm-hmm. I loved working there and loved doing the Capitals and, and the fill in work with the, with the Bullets and Orioles as well. So I actually turned down uh, two jobs in New York early in the summer of 95. And then about a month later, um, Howie Rose wound up uh, taking a combined Islanders Mets job with Sports Channel. And I was offered the job to uh, work the radio on the Rangers side and um, really thought long and hard about it for about a week because I was in such a good situation down in D.C. And uh, there, it was, there, were no, there were no minuses. It was pros on both sides. I remember right. taking out the yellow pad and um, writing the pros on, on both, in both columns to staying and, and to uh, moving to New York. And um, here we are 25 years later and uh, still at MSG, still at Fox and added NBC hockey along the way. So just real fortunate to be involved in all four. And to get back to the original question, you really have to be organized. Um, the schedule gets real crazy certain times of the year especially during mm-hmm. October when all four sports are going on at once mm-hmm. and in April and May and June during the hockey playoffs. But um, I always say there's a lot of travel and a lot of work that goes into it, but I never feel like I'm going to work. I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life, which is, uh, which is very lucky for any of us. So of all these sports, which one do you find the most challenging to call? The most challenging ever which I only did once was college wrestling <laughs> down in, down in North Carolina at the university of North Carolina. It was the ACC wrestling championships. And my producer was the great bill bell. Oh yeah. Still, still down at NBC, Washington, who was my producer for three years with the capitals. And, uh, I prepared and I, I spoke to some people who had been involved in the world of wrestling and I bought wrestling for dummies. <laughs> and des- despite all that, I, I felt like I had no idea what I was watching. So, um, only had to work one wrestling event, but, um, and again, I get this question a lot from young broadcasters. Most people that ask the question, right. Think that I'm going to answer that hockey is the most challenging because right. of all the, because of all the names and the fast pace and the changing on the fly to me, hockey's the easiest because the, the pucks in constant movement for 60 minutes, um, you do have breaks, obviously when the puck goes out of play or right. after goals and penalties, but during the actual 60 minutes of game time, the puck is moving. Something's happening. Similar to basketball, all 48 minutes, something's happening, right. although a lot slower than hockey. Football is the most rhythmic. It's one play, and then it's 20 or 30 seconds. Then it's another play, and it's 20 or 30 seconds. To me, baseball is the most challenging uh, because there's so much downtime, right. and hopefully you have a great color analyst to fill in the time. Um, so that's, you know, at least in my mind, uh, that's how I would rank them, but I think everybody would have their own their own order if you ask people who have been involved in two or three or four different sports on the play-by-play side. How many color analysts do you think you've worked with over the years? Any idea of the number? It, it's over 200. I have a list, and it's uh, well over 200. I thought it was actually more. I thought it was closer to 300, but I would say it's about it's about 225 to 230, I think. Um, I always add a couple every year. <laughs> And uh, have really, again, been fortunate to have the opportunity to work with with some of the greats, Hall of Famers, you know, in in, in all four of the sports. Um, anytime I work at Nick Game, to sit next to Walt Clyde Frazier for twenty or twenty five games a year is mm. is just so much fun. Um, on the hockey side, I've worked with with the best, you know, whether John Davidson, Joe Micheletti, Dave Maloney, Pierre Maguire, Eddie Olchek, Brian Boucher. Um, you know, all the guys that do it at a high level, 
um, in football, worked some games with Troy Aikman, worked the Sugar Bowl with, with Howie Long and Terry Bradshaw in the booth with me. Um, Hall of Famers, Anthony Munoz, Joe Namath, um, Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow. I know I'm forgetting a lot of names, but right on down the line, uh, my my longtime partners, Moose Johnston and Tony Saragusa, Rondé Barber for the last three years. And then in baseball, guys like Jim Palmer and Tim McCarver and David Cohn and Paul Molitor, um, just you know some of the best guys out there. I'm looking at a picture of my wall with Patrick Ewing. Hmm. We worked in Nick's, Nick's Summer League together back in 1996. So oh. um, it's a long list. It's out there. There was an article. Uh, a couple of people did an article on it a few years ago uh, on the 200-plus uh, analysts. But um, really, all of them just so much fun to work with. And just to hear the stories that, that they tell and some of their memories are uh, definitely worth the price of admission. And do you have a favorite call of yours? Um. Is it hard to narrow down one? It's kind of hard to narrow down. You know, I think there are some certainly memorable ones. And, and it's funny, the one the one that people ask me about the most, you know, on, on social media, on Twitter, and I, I've done fewer baseball games than, than the other sports. Um, although I shouldn't say that. I've probably done more Major League Baseball games than NBA games, but... In baseball now, it's 10 to 12 a year on average. Mm -hmm. But the the Jose Batista home run in the 2015 American League Division Series, Game 5, Toronto Mm -hmm. against Texas, that's the one that that I get probably asked about uh, more often than any. Um, In hockey, I've I've been real lucky to work seven or eight Stanley Cup finals on the radio side and um, working the 94 final. That was another um, sort of a right place at the right time. Howie Rose, who I mentioned earlier, had done the uh, 93 Stanley Cup final on NHL radio with Mike Keenan. And it was a bit of a problem in 94. They were both a little busy. Howie was also the voice of the Rangers, mm-hmm. and Mike Keenan was coaching the Rangers. So I got a phone call during the, the conference final that if, if the Rangers had beaten the Devils, that Howie wouldn't be available. Would I be interested? And, uh, you know, I didn't have to think about that for more than a half second. So working the Rangers uh, series in 94 against Vancouver. You know, that certainly has to be towards the top of the list. Um, also the 2018 women's gold medal game, mm, right. USA against Canada, uh, which went to a shootout. That's right up there. Um, in football, there have been a number of games. You know, some of them are not necessarily the, the game, but just singular moments. Right. Um, I had T.O., Terrell Owens, stomping on the star in Dallas. Oh, remember yeah. that? I remember that, yeah. I, I had that game. I had a Michael Vick uh tremendous 45 yard touchdown run in overtime in mm. Minnesota kind of zigzagging his way down the field and then running up the tunnel. I had the Victor Cruz 99 yard catch oh, yeah. uh, for the giants against the jets in 2011. So, um, the best football game as a whole that I've ever worked was probably a divisional game between San Francisco and New Orleans, a playoff game in January, 2012 that was going back and forth and, Drew Brees and Alex Smith, four touchdowns in the last four mm-hmm. minutes. And uh, if I had to rank one game, that was probably the most memorable. Um, did have the opportunity to work the uh, most recent Giants-Patriots Super Bowl, the World Feed, the international broadcast with Joe Theismann. So uh, that's that's the only Super Bowl I've been involved in mm-hmm. um, on the work side, but I'd have to put that one on the list as well. Wow. So such a story career. What's... Almost worked. Almost, you'll like this story. Almost worked a perfect game. I, I've never seen a no hitter in person. 
and I've had a couple in games that I was working go seven innings, seven mm-hmm. and two thirds. There was a, a White Sox Seattle game in 2012 that I was actually scheduled for in Seattle. And once the hockey playoffs came about, Fox is always, uh, you know, very, very uh, nice about taking me off some games so I can work the hockey playoff games. And uh, I had a game scheduled in Seattle in April of 2012. And it was going to be game five of the Rangers Ottawa first round series that year. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fox. Uh, was able to replace me on that game out in Seattle. And I'll never forget, sitting at the Garden, the game was actually on TV, Philip Umber, hmm. perfect game right. for the White Sox. And that so, could have been yours. W- would have had the opportunity to call a perfect game if not for the Rangers-Ottawa playoff game. Wow. And what, do you recall the longest game of all time? Whether, you know, hockey has all the overtimes, baseball? Well, in hockey I've worked, I think, three games that – that went to triple overtime. Uh, the Marion Gabbert game, Rangers mm-hmm. Washington. Um, I had a Chicago Anaheim game. I think Marcus Kruger ended it um, in Anaheim, and that would have been 2015, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure I had one other triple overtime game. I'd have to do some research on that one. Um, but in baseball, it was 20 innings. It was 2010 uh, Mets and St. Louis Cardinals in St. Louis. And the, the thing about this game was, first of all, when a game goes in deep into extra innings, it, it doesn't feel like it's gone as long as it has because you never expect it to go that long. You're thinking it can, it can end any inning. Right. So it's not like you sit down and start the game and say, okay, we're going to be here for 20 innings. Every inning you think it's going to end. But it also started at 3 o'clock local time, so it wasn't one of those games that went deep into the night. It ended about 9 o'clock. So it didn't feel as long as it was, but... Um, it did go 20 innings. It was nothing, nothing through 18. And I'll never forget. I was working with Tim McCarver and it was nothing, nothing through 18. And the Mets score in the top of the 19th to take the lead. And then the Cardinals tie it in the bottom of the 19th. And as soon as I said, and the Cardinals have tied the game at one, Tim McCarver, you know, one of, one of his great lines, he said, of course they did. (laughs) And we went on to the 20th inning. Mets won the game two to one. It was April early in the season, so it wasn't really a game that had a lot of impact in anything. And uh, you know, one of the takeaways from that game is, although I could have, the men's room was nearby. I never left the booth. Never went to the bathroom. Amazing during the during the course of the twenty innings. Amazing. That is amazing. Well, as I said at the beginning, you're an encyclopedia brain. You know, trivia. Whenever we need to know something, we ask Kenny. Always ask Kenny. And if Kenny sends us a note, whether we're in the truck, it's no surprise. Kenny knows it. And so, 50% of the time, hopefully I'm right. Yeah, I was more like uh, 99.999. Very rarely does Kenny get something wrong. So I'm going to throw some trivia questions at you and see if you can All get right. them. And Bring it on. Hopefully, hopefully I don't stump you here. Major League Baseball leader for RBI in a single season. Would that be Hack Wilson? It would be. Do you know the number? 154? 191. Oh, okay, I was real low on that one. But, uh, okay, I got the name right at least. Most wins in a season by an NHL goaltender? Uh, well, it was Brodeur, and then Braden Holtby either tied it or broke the record. Right, tied it. Nice. 48. Who is the NBA's all-time leading three-point shooter? In percentage or three-point shots made? In three-point shots made. Is it Ray Allen? It is Ray Allen. 
2973. And the top that's three for that's three for three so far. That is three for three so far. Last one. Top four leading rushers in NHL history. Uh, or NFL. What did I say? NHL. Sorry, NFL history. I apologize. Well, you have Emmett Smith who broke the record. Right. Uh, Jim Brown. Nope. Not in the top four. Uh, Walter Payton. Correct. And did LaDainian Tomlinson sneak in there? Did not. The final two are Frank Gore. Oh, that's right. That was that was this year. He snuck into the top right. four. And Barry Sanders. Right. Okay. There right. you go. But you had you had the top two. So. So that's so that's three point five out of four. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'll take it. Yeah. So Kenny, I appreciate your time. Hopefully you uh, stay healthy and safe, and uh, hopefully we uh, see each other at an arena nearby soon. Well, you too, Steve. Um, you know, it was great uh, reliving some of the memories and big shoes to fill and Dave Maloney, who I know was your prior guest, and uh, hopefully we do see you very soon. Yeah, and like I said, this guy is amazing. I mean, if you listen to this whole thing, the, the names he remembers, the dates he remembers, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy. And uh, that's why we love Kenny, for Kenny being Kenny. Kenny, thanks again. Thanks, Steve. Truly one of the great sports minds there has ever been, and what an amazing human being. So many people have touched his life, and he always mentions their names to give credit to his story. He is a great colleague who teaches me every day, and a friend who likes to go toe-to-toe with me, comparing our busy schedules. Good news is, we have already discussed doing part two. Thanks, Kenny. Be sure to listen to episode three of Mike Check on Sports. I'll find out what it's like to get a puck to the face and what it was like to go to college with fellow New York broadcasters Michael Kay and Mike Breen. All this and more when I sit down with MSG Network's John Giannone. Take care. Brush your hair.